0: Oh, yeah. People like games. I have on a very cool guest with me today, the former CEO of Superdata and now professor at NYU, Juice Randrunen. Welcome to the show. Excellent. He is the author of One Up, the actually best gaming business book that I've read um, in the space. And so we're going to be talking about that and a whole lot of other things because I really. As I was reading through everything, I actually ended up wading over to your substack as well. So I I've, I've might be a little creepy. I basically read everything on you now. Um, yeah, that's good. This that's what it's Uh And it was great because I, I really agreed with everything you said in terms of what type of analysis is lacking. And as someone who's been doing a very similar version of it, there's not really a conceptual take on it. And it was funny that... The book begins with a quote by Marshall McLuhan, which no one's going to be really familiar, but he's a communications, uh, theorist from the 1960s. And I saw that it was hilarious. That was one of my, my master's thesis was very much founded on Marshall McLuhan's work as well. Um, no way. and it was funny because it was also on media. So the book basically divides gaming into three spheres, right? Games as a product service, and now as media. Um, and so. Game does as a product is when everything started. And so, because that portion of things is sort of well written about the launch of the consoles, et cetera, uh, I thought that was great um, in terms of just analysis. But I did have a few questions on that then. So, um, let's, let's do it. I want to hear. All right, it. Beginning with uh, how come you did not mention Gunpei Yokoi, which is just a teasing claw of mine, but. Uh, <laughs> The the actual, a, be, go ahead, go ahead. Uh, the actual question would be, go ahead. The actual question would be, you mentioned in it that Electronic Arts was the publisher that ended up setting up the sort of blockbuster release strategy of setting up this, you know, sort of direct to retail marketing uh, system. I was curious because uh, I was curious how Nintendo wouldn't end up qualifying to be similar to that, given that they were also releasing major titles like the mario or zelda as you mentioned whenever the consoles were coming out so it might not have been the same blockbuster strategy during the lifetime of the consoles but Mm -hmm. is it arguably similar or would be different oh absolutely absolutely i mean and you point out a a, um you know an
1: observation that i've heard a few times before which is the games industry in general is this you know, incredible mosaic of companies making both horrible and brilliant decisions in terms of the type of content they roll out, as well as how they do that, like how they fund it, how they hire for it, how they market it and distribute it, all those questions. And the whole premise of the book is basically to say, you know, here's an industry that's worth $160 billion that seemingly no one has ever looked at. I mean, so imagine if, um, you know, let's say uh, we would have to write such a book today about the newspaper business, right? We'd never heard of the New York Times. We'd never heard of any of those things. Uh, And suddenly, you know, that became, but it's one of the largest industries out there. It would be unheard of, right? And so it raises a lot of questions, which is the larger sort of theme of the book to say, to bring some visibility to it. The motivation for me was was really, um, you know, in teaching my class at NYU is that there was really no text I could rely on and as a result, it's like, well, look, I'm, I'm going to either, at, at, the, at the worst of it, I had two separate readers, which cost my students 250 bucks per person. I was like, this is bullshit you know like i can't yeah. teach like this right and you know never mind that nobody would actually do the readings or buy the readers it was also just like a it's a mess and i've wanted so much to have like a consistent narrative and something that has like an arc over the last 20 30 years so to your point with regards to ea being sort of the, the poster child for uh, you know the the blockbuster approach that you see gaming absolutely right that they're not the only ones, right? Nintendo did this as well. Um, and they did this in a very different way. What I try to show is basically different illustrations of where companies uh, differenti- uh, differentiate themselves or distinguish themselves. And so I could have told that whole story about Nintendo as well. So I think, like this is what mm-hmm. Nintendo is as well. They, they wrote the book on how to effectively launch these blockbuster titles. At the same time, you know, the story I cannot tell about EA is they you know how they revive the games industry from the console side so that's really the um, the reason there were to say that uh, you know i'm just sort of cherry picking cool case studies mm-hmm. uh, in the same way that i could talk you know supercell and valve each have like a really cool way of organizing themselves as companies mm-hmm. but you know supercell has no real pc
0: history so that just makes valve a better case study i understand and actually that was probably a way better way to go about it because i was i had so many questions i wasn't really sure where to bring the whole scale, uh, wholesale perspective in, but as you said, a singular text that sort of conveys the history um, mm-hmm. economically and development-wise and publisher-wise. I, like you said, the fact that $160 billion industry doesn't have that sort of data is astonishing to me. And as someone who is at Superdata, you know as well that the access to this sort of information is difficult to come by um, because That's the you know, majority... Yeah they're private companies and you know they they can give what they want and it sort of just brings me back to Steam Spy which I'm sure you were familiar with uh, which was it yeah and they I got shut it, so. down yep they got shut down by Valve and I I I'm curious why uh do, do you see these other media industries say like we say the newspaper do they they're forced to 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 give at least a form of transparency with regards to what they're doing I feel mm-hmm. like gaming has been so clouded in secrecy, and because of the nature of the privacy of the companies, mm-hmm. there, there it's been impossible to do what you did without having a company that could have, as yourself, been part of the data. side. Yes. Um, I mean, it really, like if I'm very honest, it's like I started the company because I wanted the data, I and mean, in fact,
1: you know, it's it it just seemed like impossible from an academic perspective, which is where all this started for me, right? So I did the PhD, and that was a lot of fun. But the problem I constantly ran into is like, well, where is the data? And I could find some in like um, financial reports from sell side analysts, like the Michael Packers of the world. Mm-hmm. If you go to university, you can get access to a Bloomberg terminal. You can kind of piece it cool. together, but it doesn't really exist. There's no, there's only just, uh, that's only publicly traded data. And it's you know a lot of work to get it all in the same place at the same time so that you can compare it and draw inferences. So the idea was really it's like, well, well, why can't we track things? you know, better, and especially in digital. So as digital came up, that was the sort of Genesis myth for uh, Superdata. They said, you know, we decided that, well, NPDs make a lot of money and GFKs make a lot of money tracking physical sales in North America and Europe. And that's cool for them, but what about digital? And nobody was looking at it. So we said, well, that's the opportunity. So we went after it, Um, but it took that much, right? At, at At the peak, right before we sold the company to Nielsen, we had 40, 45 analysts. And you know, I mean, I hired those people. They were, and because of that, like I was able to cherry pick some of the best minds in the industry. I mean, we'd have, um, you know, I, I look back at that period with a, a lot of uh, uh, a lot of joy because it was, you know. I mean, I'm sure you recognize this, but you end up with this question, like, well, I want to have this data. I want to understand the industry from this numeric perspective, whatever. Mm -hmm. How do I get it? And then you get to do it with like three, four dozen of the smartest people you know, right? And that was the whole check, it was was so cool. So so that was uh, really something that got out of hand and was ultimately in response to, where is it right and so and i know that you probably do this too like you go online and there's like a few message boards and some secret groups and on discord and like some insider information flying around but it's never cohesive no and it's continues to be that way obviously but so the the book was really about getting that done
0: it's funny you mentioned that because honestly I, I might just end up jumping all together because i have sort of a list of questions based off you know i it's all it's sort of the conversation i wish i could have had in terms of what you're saying directly which is the numbers because as the, as the industry is evolving and we're at these pivot points, whatever data has existed already is not really reflective of which way things are going. So you're having these Never. sort of new data markers that you have to mm-hmm. basically stitch together on the fly to be able to create a short-term analysis, maybe longer term. You have some more traditional versions, right? Mm-hmm. But the lack of access to that data is, makes it difficult um, because like you're saying, there's a predictability, but more so in content because exactly as you're saying there as basically now we're just going to skip all the way forward to games as a media for the listeners games as a service Mm -hmm. was actually funny enough a great pivot pivoting point was free to play and mobile and so that Mm -hmm. ended up going and now we're at basically a new juncture once more i would Mm -hmm. say arguably as as free to play has sort of waned and consoles and pcs are back and now it's just sort of everything is sort of equal in its own niches but content is what has evolved outside of gaming. And I think you've touched on it a few times and funny enough, that's what I was excited to talk to you. This was a research I did myself and could not find any more data on. And so I hit my own wall. I did not have 45 analysts. Um, <laughs> no, it took a while to get there, but it's, you know, yeah, that's, right. that's how th- that things are written and built out of frustration. Most of the time, you know, uh, okay. uh, frustration is the mother of invention. Um, there you go. <laughs> I like that. The, um, the the value because you mentioned the network effect a few times, mm-hmm. right? And the network effect is basically the sort of community impact on a game's popularity, which ends up affecting its player base, which ends up affecting how much it can monetize. As streamers become popular, and you and I even re- read your four forms of monetization, which is advertising, cryptocurrency, uh, subscriptions, and, and, and mm-hmm. merch. Is there? what would the value of content be then that these, that, that network effect, is there a quantifiable, is it way, is there a way to quantify the network effect of what a active community does for a game's lifetime revenue?
1: Uh, well, the, sh- the short answer is yes.
0: I, I mean, so the,
1: um, you, you, you I mean, I, I'm not an economist, uh, you know, maybe, uh, in In secret, I, I wish I was one, but the um you know there is always the ability to quantify and express things in numbers, and then if you make it more complicated, you turn up the heat, you say econometrics. There is an equation where you know network effects can be quantified and you know expressed in a number that says, well, here's what that does. the The tension is, of course, always, you know is is the health of a community and the growth of that community uh,
0: conducive to the profits of a company? Right, and that's that's ultimately why I want to measure these things. That's where it comes out. So, say say in a subreddit. So you don't really mention Reddit's on Reddit or Discord uh, communities in, in the analysis of the network effects in the communities and the active engagement, um, mm-hmm. the evolution of those. Right. And so, say you have X amount. If you have someone who has a really big Twitter following but doesn't really but doesn't have a big Instagram following, is that is there a way that this is affecting games that we're not maybe seeing? on the face of mm-hmm. it, uh, an active community, maybe behind the scenes, everybody's missing it. So then if that Reddit and Discord move in and, and increase, how do, you, how do you even account for what a streamer is doing to even move that sort of community? So like Fortnite, you probably could have put a six degrees of separation to the number of players that Ninja was able mm-hmm. to affect and uh, how, much moni- you know, how much money that was able to drive. Is that feasible with the this the, the data that exists or is that sort of just a speculative formula yeah so so there, there is
1: there is um um you know now this is a secret but so the time i spent at nielsen was instructive in many ways and one of the boys is that you know companies like nielsen they track whatever they can track right so they they just crawl the internet and so um a social following and social impressions, like all of those numbers go into ultimately evaluation of properties, of publishers, of franchises. And it ends up being, you know, this sort of scorecard, if you will. So if you remember in the physical era, when it was really about, we're hyping this game up for two, three months, and then we're gonna have this blowout two, three weeks when we actually sell it at at retail, you know, the metric there would be things like Metacritic score. What, what did the review, the professional reviewers say? What did the whatever the amateur reviewers say? And then what's that number? And it it was in fact so relevant that they would write that into agreements and, and with developers. Right. If the game scores above eighty five percent on Metacritic, you get a
0: bonus. What they did with the CD thing. project developer bonus. Ex-
1: exactly. Exactly. Right. So so that is sort of a practice that, in effect, quantifies the network. Effect influence on the success of a title. So you fast forward that to a service model or to a media model. Now it's, of course, uh, you know, I think uh, Apex Legends is the best example, right? So we have Apex Legends, which is this smaller studio inside of EA that doesn't get the love and attention and the full weight of the executive team. And then there is, um, forget the name now. What was the, what was the shooter that came out at the same time? It's not this it is. Apex, I mean, excuse me, um, Anthem. Anthem, there you go, thank you. And so, so, but that one had the, you know, full support from all the Armani suit wearing people in the boardroom, right? And so you have these Mm -hmm. two different titles. One is free to play. one is premium. One follows an old model, one follows a new model, right? And what Apex Legends did so well, it was reach out to influencers on Twitch and get them to play for a day and then they said, "You know what? This is a lot of fun. I'm going to continue to play." It was like sort of at the time it was a new shtick on the uh, battle royale model, where you would have you know groups of three and so, so it was innovative in that they were able to leverage social media influence versus the more conventional uh, advertising channels that you would see uh, Anthem use. And and the
0: results speak for themselves. That reminds me very much of the strategy Valorant did, which was mm-hmm. to they give know, all these. But now. If the basis was, as you were saying, and I agreed with it, which was these these streamers and personalities, the PewDiePie's who who were raised and, and sort of have become the YouTube and content creating staples in gaming, their own independence has become a question because of the back end access that they're getting to all of these developers, well, yes. etc.
1: That's but that's a you know a colleague of mine uh, David Nieborg uh, at the University of Toronto he writes on this it, it's about the, uh, the soft power of publishers right so you must remember uh, too uh, there was a time when Jeff Keeley was in a different job right Jeff Keighley who now runs the, uh, the the game awards and this big famous fancy guy and you know he's great I have met him a few times he's super friendly. But he is a really good example of someone who got sort of sandwiched between the interests of, you know, the organization he worked for, and of course, you know, the and, and the sponsors of that organization. And so you have that one shot of him sitting between like, uh, what is it, like Mountain Dew and Doritos, mm-hmm. having some kind of halo review. He's like, okay, well, at what point have we lost journalistic integrity? And that was a big topic. And it's not to say that Jeff was, uh, you know, single-handedly responsible for all this, but he, he makes for a good example. So streamers, then, and 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 all the YouTube kids and all the Twitch personalities, they initially at least had that sort of authenticity. It's like, well, they're sort of un unleashed, unbound mm-hmm. people that can say as they please about a game, and and that's how I, as a consumer, will learn that this is the real stuff. And that, of course, eventually turned out not to be. You know, that slowly goes away. So the 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 pressure that large organizations and conglomerates will put on these people to say, in order for them to get access to early releases, you can't really, you know, bite the hand that feeds you. You can't say, well, this title is total crap. You shouldn't buy this because they'll never call you again. And that's a very common practice. And so it was only for a brief moment that that existed. I think to a large extent, a lot of that's gone. It's uh, it's, it's professionalized and influencers and are returns. not as reliable. Right, right. Cool. It's, and- it's, uh, it's how that goes.
0: But see that that's where it becomes super tricky where you know you have even then so the 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 ability for those streamers to have been able to be these sort of independent like gatekeeper breakers coincided with the inability of anyone to understand the way intellectual property was going to be enforced on all of this internet video content right and so all of a sudden as they started getting the systems in place to check the algorithms etc the copyright strike system has sort of come out more aggressively now is there any fear for players or anybody who say puts up a review of a game that's negative for that to be flagged as copyright infringement simply because the developer doesn't like it that sort of system is i want to yeah. say because the reason i mentioned this is because it the whole content of content creation is a, is a uniquely unmonetized space for game <laughs> publishers um, so everyone's playing their stuff and there's network effect value for the game, but the actual like if you want to play 30 seconds of a sports clip or a mm-hmm. movie anything you got to pay somebody so for them to either mm-hmm. say yes, we want you to do it if you say something good about us or no, if you don't is going to create that trust divide. Mm-hmm. Nintendo is on the side of mm-hmm. say good things or don't say it and you don't have an option no one says anything in Nintendo it's Nintendo but mm-hmm. sorry, Nintendo um but Uh, you know within the realm of then what are they going to do right now that they want if they want to get content out right do you foresee a potential licensing cost for content creators to be able to use stream so if you want to make overwatch content you can you can stream it all you want but it's five dollars a month access to be able to to stream or use this content so, so, a f- the, the, so, a streamer would pay a fee
1: to the publisher to use yeah. their game? <coughs> for content creation. You know, Nintendo would somewhere. like that very much. Yes. Nintendo would I like think, it very much. Because do you think because Nintendo's they're...
0: reason for not going to mobile right now because they pulled out is that they're awaiting the Google, Apple, Epic Games lawsuit to end because they're not going to give 30% of their money to anybody? So, it's sort of the same mm-hmm. system, isn't it? Until they get legally what they yeah. want, then they'll come in. Oh, just one second, hold on. Okay. Hey, sorry about that. No, no worries.
1: So the, to oh. the answer to your question is, um, very simply put, I don't, I don't think so, um, I think that the only department that uh, runs with a Nintendo or Sony or any of them is really the legal department. I don't think that they look at it as a franchising or licensing opportunity. It's not a revenue generating uh, division, it's really about don't put our stuff next to something that we don't want to be put next to, right? And Disney is a little different for instance and that perhaps is a good example to say, you know, when you look at the app store around the launch of a Star Wars title, there's mm-hmm. lots of little titles out there that have like a little Star Wars logo because Disney just been like handing out licenses left. Right. And so the app store is not that far away from a live stream economic in that, well, if there's a thousand live streamers, like, well, why don't you give them like a license? So there is a possibility there's, you know, that that would be a viable model over time where, mm-hmm. you know, you know, Howard Stern probably pays for his music right yeah. he gets a license yeah. to certain things right if you if you are a particular category if you do only rap music or rock music on the radio you probably pay some distributor or some promoter like a fee to get stuff fast early high def maybe which, some interviews MCAs are
0: a great example of you guys are paying now right so the evolution right. of moving so now sort of they'll have a licensing platform that you can pay $10 a month and get all these songs to use <laughs> it's gonna cut and bundle it so they can keep adding little revenue drivers the only reason I think
1: so that would be you know perhaps a possibility in the near term for those companies that have experience with other categories like sony is also in music so it's possible that they'll say something along those lines however I think it outweighs what outweighs the benefit of all of that is being on twitch early and constantly it just drives sales, right? Because people yeah. will constantly see your game, and that maintains community, that maintains engagement. That is far more valuable to them in 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 just revenue than it is to make a little bit of money off of a license. So unless that balance starts to change, mm-hmm. uh, well,
0: you know, unless it's very specific, I don't think it's going to change just yet. How come video game publishers have been so semi hesitant on large scale IP merchandising for? Basic consumer goods cups. You know, you know how suddenly there's a big deluge of Legos and this. Why did you think that took so long? Like you said, it's such a valuable industry. I feel like there was always a demand for that. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, they're, it's, it's they're the. Just uh, coming around to these things late. You know, internal buy. The
1: thing did not, you see, like, what, what makes sense to you and me as like, individuals is like, do do it. Like, get Mario and like, why isn't he on my coffee cup at yeah. the 7 Eleven? You know, like, like, why can't I get this? And so it seems to make a lot of sense because we're just the people on the ground. Large companies are, first of all, generally pretty dumb and slow, right? To put it in a funny mm-hmm. term, uh, because it just, I mean, it's like a tanker, like that <laughs> the, the tanker that got stuck to his channel. is like- The evergreen. That's kind of the pace that you have to think about. The ever, you know, that, so, so that's the, um, I feel like I'm getting chopped here. The um, so So, large companies are slow to move and they are very slow to make decisions. And so my colleague, uh, Matthew Ball, he wrote about this with regards to Nintendo. It's like Nintendo sees itself a certain way and it just is not going to, to do that. And then you know, I think the, the second piece to remember is that, you know, from a licensing perspective, uh, they, the games industry has grown like fourfold in the last 10 years. So these companies are are sort of thrust in the center of attention after being on the
0: fringes in entertainment for years, right? I, I, so I they're think just not very much used to thinking about it. It's like you said in the book as well, which is their focus on a singular type of demographic has also mm. really you know pushed them. Which is maybe people didn't foresee the success of Animal Crossing and Among Us because they didn't realize that there's a wider game base that exists, and it's the same thing as you know of with the Wii, mm-hmm. if you expand the base, I think Microsoft is sort of doing a version of that now. It might be getting choppy because there might be like a 30-minute limit on these records. So there might be a possibility uh, okay. that exists, but find out. Let um, me shut down a few things that uh, don't have
1: anything to do with anything.
0: OK, go ahead. Same. Um, and then, um, yeah, I guess uh, that, would be, that would be an interesting one. Um, Microsoft is working on the expand the player base version right with cloud gaming so now we're into the new era of new gamers so now mm-hmm. this actually goes to your games as media thing right so now that we've moved out and removed out of the the monthly recurrent fee and we're trying to figure out these novel approaches which that was a great quote i loved of yours which is um coming up with novel strategies as mar- markets and categories shift um do you think loot boxes is a dead a dead property at the moment do you think it'll be able to... It's, a, it's dead? You think it's dead is in it, the water, it, you mean? Yeah. Do you think it's dead in the water with um, with now these links coming out to gambling, that they're going to have to find a new creative monetization strategy?
1: No, no I don't think so. I think, you know, I, I think that EA totally shit the bed on that thing because they yeah, were just yeah. a little too grabby, you know, yeah, but, right. which is, uh, you know, so something that a lot of people accuse EA of as being too revenue focused and not enough on the innovation. And you could kind of argue that may be the case, but, but you know, It's a unfortunately, mobile game, their is name is associated
0: with
1: You know, well, big Well, let's, let's take a step a back. Right, so let's take a step back, right? So the, the practice, so first of all, like calling, you know, borrowing Las Vegas vernacular, like whales, is really, yeah, it it, it it kind of, well, it tells you exactly like where their head's at, right? And so any company, not just, not just EA, of course, but even social casino game companies, they were like, oh, we're mobile and it's not for real money, but still we're going to monetize the bejesus out of these whales. And the whales have always been sort of a conflict, at least to me, a controversial term because you invite the mindsets and the attention of like regulators. Like, why would you mm-hmm. say that? Even if you're not that. actually a gambling game, like, why would you wake up? Whatever the regulatory board in New Jersey to your game so that they can go and like pester your legal department and cost you a bunch of money, even if you're not doing
0: anything that's illegal. They are like, going why would you to... say that? Why you know? are you gonna have them take a look at your books uh for no reason? Uh, which actually that seems counterintuitive. It does, but I, I don't usually assume the most common sense um in oh, no. in all decision makings. Uh which actually so, now Oh you're saying I was actually gonna switch it over to uh Project Red, actually, which was ah. a, a function of that, which is decision making, but did you have a... Well, so but you, you mentioned uh, loot boxes, but so to round that out,
1: is so, so the short term, I think, calling things people whales and, and borrowing them by dynamic is, you know, ill-advised. So the longer term thing for me is loot boxes will stick around. Because mm-hmm. it works so well, and when you buy Pokemon trading cards, it works so well with Magic: The Gathering, the Wizards of the Coast is coming up on the billion dollars a year. It's like this shining star for Hasbro, so, and they,
0: you know, they sell little card packs, and you have no why, idea what's in them. Why isn't that argument legally analogous?
1: Well, it's because there's no intrinsic, there's an intrinsic value, you can actually take those cards and then sell them again. Right. And so, and so and they do give you like drop rates and all stuff. Whereas with loot boxes, it's, a, you know, they just went over the line where you don't know what you're getting, but you can't, you can't resell it. Right. And then there's also sort of like, you would spend what 1200 $1,800 to get the pink Darth Vader. You know, like, that, they just yeah, kind of, yeah. they, they ramped it up to the degree that it was just like, this is unavoidable. What's the matter with you?
0: That's actually very, uh, very interesting that you mentioned, that, which is I- exactly what um, exactly what they ended up doing, which is to alienate people and to bring people in by ramping it up too much. But by nature of the the cards and the actual digital value, right, of the secondary value market, you said like as what happened with GameStop, right? They were valuable as a retail brick and mortar establishment, but as they had publishers had the option to suddenly digitize and go directly to the consumer themselves? Why would they go through the middleman? Mm-hmm. Why, then now we're talking about even I saw in one of your, your sub stacks, you mentioned cryptocurrency being important because of fractal ownership of digital goods, which is mm-hmm. more or less the ability to own your skins in Fortnite nine and then trade them on a secondary market. If I'm if I'm not mistaken with that analysis, but if the what what benefit would that give what benefit what would it benefit the publishers why would they do that right if their if their process is to shut down secondary markets they're not even a fan of CD key reselling you know and so if if
1: that's the case i mean so that but that's the thing is because the the second time that cdk gets sold they don't make any money right that's sort of where they never liked gamestop for that reason too GameStop said, yeah, you know what? I'm going to sell this same box six times, make money every time, and you only get paid the first time. And so, and and the argument was, well, you know, if I am a car dealer and I'm selling a Nissan or whatever, like, I don't pay Nissan every time it gets resold. I pay them only the first time, right? And so they,
0: and they said, but see, like an
1: old car and an old game, is not the same thing, right? You,
0: you, well, why is it not Star it, Wars. It, it is when it's a it is when it's a physical, tangible good. I always say on my show, "Physical till I die," because of ownership. Look at the PS3 and the Vita store. That's I know. I know. So, so I'm I'm with you on that, right? But
1: I I want to live in a wireless, uncluttered world. So I've always sort of um, liked to go digital. But I'm with you that uh, mm. physical ownership. Uh, it's still like, it's it's comforting and it sort of it gives us some security in, in a sense that we don't have in a digital world. And I think Sony really made a mistake last week and then they turned it the right around. It's like, all right, cool. You know, and I and I see it too with like Game Pass. You're kind of like, okay, well, why is this in here, but not that? And yeah. so I see my own urge to kind of, uh, you know, want to critique and criticize like backwards compatibility and so on. With the, you know, what what I believe cryptocurrency affords the industries and the ability to, if I'm Sony, and I push out a game, and then you know, they sell it to me one time, mm-hmm. and then I sell mine to you, if you set up a smart contract, Sony gets paid every time it changes hands. Right, so so I might be exchanging this with you, but then they still get their 10% transaction fee. And so if you just, you know, whatever uh, you pay me, like we, they can bake that into the actual asset. So that's one thing. And then when it comes to individual components of the game, say a particular outfit or whatever, they might be, those things, those assets might become more valuable over time. And so I might be holding a whole catalog of digital assets and let's say doubles in value, right? I can now sell it, but see, then Sony gets paid again, or whoever owns, whoever created the original asset. So the so there's a lot of ways to sort of ameliorate and make better the uh, the circumstances that haven't worked well. But they are so sort of traumatized by like things like GameStop and second-hand sale and like CD keys, like you pointed out,
0: that they're probably not going to allow for that for a while, unless they can unless they can infinite loop dip into whatever sales occur, then they're not going to have an interest in. I mean, I, I can't argue that. Listen, I, I, I agree with very much the, the notion of the book that the economics of things matter, and so for people to say, "Wow, well, that's maybe not inherently creative," maybe, mm-hmm. maybe not the case. So I've, I've, I've
1: no, do, i I do mean, that, that's questions. the that's the whole book. It's, it's that tension between creativity and commerce, right? It's like in the one hand, it's like yeah, we all want to make cool games. I'm not a game maker, but I, you know, I work with enough teams and. I certainly play, I play enough, so I, I, that's where that's where my heart is. That's where I want to spend my time. But at the end of the day, well, I still got to eat, right? And so, mm-hmm. and so keeping line. And so, a large part of, of game development comes down to like, can you hire the right people and get them on a project working long enough to see it through, to actually realize a particular creative vision, that costs money. Right? And so, you 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 cannot get around. Sort of you know financial ramifications, and so you can either ignore them, like a lot of uh, yeah. my students at NYU did at the game center would say, it's like oh I'll just eat ramen for six months, yeah. right, or something. They'll just like starve themselves. And like all right, that's that's kind of cool, I guess, but like you know this idea of this bohemian starving artist, like, that's not a thing, like you yeah. know. And then at the same time, you know you still have to sort of address that. So you can ignore it or you can embrace it and say, well, let's make a plan. And let's, let's, you know, if I'm going to run a marathon, I'm not going to start running today and be great tomorrow, but I can build a regiment and a diet and get some support and buy good sneakers, all of which is me going over the numbers, right? I'm weighing and measuring and counting and that will get me to the marathon. And
0: I think that's the same with game development. And you know, you could also tell them that the ramen idea is great until you make it in the industry and then you understand why they're pushing for unionization. Um, mm-hmm. but I guess now I got like two more questions. I don't wanna use too much more of your time, even though I'm having a, a great conversation. There's really no one else who actually covers this sort of material. I do know Matthew Ball's work. Um mm-hmm. he had a great analysis on Amazon. Um It's actually funny enough on your your book, I actually made this comparison. So I saw what you were talking about with GTA 5. So GTA 5 released at the end of the Xbox One and PS3 lifecycle to get the most mature base of users that existed. And so when Mm -hmm. they released there, they had the upgraded versions in pocket. So a few tankers and they could bring it to the Xbox One and the PS4 when it came out. And then they ended up launching GTA Online, right? Mm -hmm. And that ended up being clunky and didn't really work. But now we know how that ended, right? This is a retrospect because this is a retrospective view. Now we have CD project Red, um, and that's something you had mentioned uh, in in yours as well. So based off um, the fact that I couldn't help but think that what they tried to do with Cyberpunk 2077 was identical to what GTA five was, and Mm-hmm. It would be within their wheelhouse to try to mimic what Rockstar is doing. So they were going to release it at the end of life console, then they were going to do the upgraded versions and then release the multiplayer. That's literally the identical version. And then however it went initially, even though it above, they would over time prove just like GTA did that you can implement in a system that's a massive multiplayer game after the fact. They mm-hmm. Rockstar didn't do such a great do- job with it with Red Dead though. But, Mm -hmm. great single player
1: game. Totally.
0: Would you agree? I like the online, but... It's not bad, no, it's not bad. It's not to say it's not, but it's not what GTA Online became, right? And so, Mm -hmm. if CD Projekt Red, which has the ability and and development skills, et cetera, to create that sort of game and universe, Cyberpunk would have been it. With Mm -hmm. the complete, utter failure of that rollout, because of the fact they didn't prepare for not having it ready for a worse system, which to me, honestly, is understandable. Like, I, I don't know. If you bought your console in 2013 and you're complaining that Cyberpunk 2077 didn't work on it, I empathize because, yeah, it was a shoddy, but inherently, we can say it's a fair argument. Um, but there was, would you would you say that it was almost similar? They were trying to mimic a version of that strategy. I think they just oh, sure. didn't stick the back-end landing. I, I think for a lot of... I think what the 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 top
1: brass in the industry has learned from both the 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 Indies and the newcomers, and particularly mobile is that development used to be six years of nothing. And then here is this big blowout moment, and it's become iterative design. Uh, so gradually do we roll out different things that allow us to, you know, basically like we launch the game and then add on and a level pack and online capability and then this and whatever. So, and what it does is it helps you parse out the financial risk Mm -hmm. because if you build all that stuff and then launch it once, I don't know. It's like, if it fails, like you lose more money and it might not, and it puts a lot of pressure on getting all these things right. And I think what um, the way Rockstar described it to me back in the day was, all right, so we have this game out and then we launched the online component and 25 million people all go online at the same time. Like that's, I mean, just technologically, that's a really stupid idea, right? I mean, yeah. you can't even vote for American Idol with more than like a million people at a time because the yeah. phone system will go crashed out, like, let alone have like this uh, this MMO so the, So the notion that they did was perhaps a little naive uh, but I guess only to the extent that they didn't expect to be that successful with the title. They were Not bad way problem. more success, you know. So, so it was, yeah. There's no, there's no sympathy for me, for them, uh, for me there. But at the same time, it's like so you, so you start to see these big triple A publishers that are learning that one thing at a time actually works better for them too. Like it's better for the audience because you know you can build them up, you can re-engage them, you can build the franchise, and you make more money this way too. From that point, from that. I would say that the Blueprint, I think, CD Project borrowed a lot of pages mm-hmm. from, from that sort of, uh, from that example. And the, the only difference between them and Rockstar is that Rockstar will delay a title until investors and consumers are blue in the face. And then they mm-hmm. delay it some more because they don't care. They care only about quality, which you, if you listen to like Strazelnik and before Ben Federer, like what they will always say is like, it's quality make a good game, off you go. Nintendo says the same thing. And I think CD Projekt Red, you know, in their ambition, you know, they wanted to deliver on the holiday season, I think, you know, the launch of the new consoles, they were subsidized by the platform. So I I remember seeing a tailored Xbox, like a Mm -hmm. custom Cyberpunk Xbox command, all these joysticks. It was all very cool. It was going to be the biggest new IP for the ninth generation of hardware. Cool. And so they probably took a few liberties to get there they, that just bit them in the ass.
0: Yeah. And I, I, I mean, personally, I, I had thought that poten- they had maybe potentially banked on a delay of the new console generation. I think everyone assumed once the pandemic hit that there mm. might be a delay. And then with that not being delayed for them to try to catch on to the end of the market, they rushed it, which I don't think was really necessary because if time has taught us anything, it's if both of these consoles are doing basic you know xbox one x is allowing xbox one games or whatever the version naming is whoever came up no, with i, to, I totally agree
1: but here's the thing right so like i i i had the game and then all this news comes out about how they were treating staff so i i got myself a refund It's like until they fix how they treat the people that actually make the thing they can just take a walk like they can go love themselves somewhere else right so the and from, so that that was sort of the, the- A lot less copies
0: got returned than I expected. Only 30K. Well, on that's, that email.
1: yeah, that's, which is not a lot, right? So, but it's the, the principle is like, you gotta treat the people well. Mm-hmm. And one of those components, I mean, I say this as someone who used to run a team, right? So it's like, if you treat the team well, the end result will be great. 100%. And not, you can't, you can't economize on that. And, and they clearly did. And until they fix that part, I have no interest in playing the game and no matter how buggy it is, right? But that's a principle matter for me. Yeah. I think we are very accepting of it, but I think the expectations were also way too high at that point. Like there's
0: no, yeah. like no way that they could have delivered on that. no, and, I, like, and that, that was another arm. one unrealistic expectation of gamers. Um, but it's curious, you know, now their anger is getting a lot of response just to sort of close it out. Um, I have one last question for you. That's just a, a show staple, but how Xbox mm-hmm. responded to the uh, the live subscription price hike and they just jumped it back down, PlayStation responding to this. The only one who doesn't respond to anything is Nintendo. They just stay above the fray. They're like, sorry guys. Every time my, my sister and I joke, I, I I go and I see, I'm like, wow, I can't believe Nintendo's pricing this. And then I go and buy it because it's Nintendo. What are you gonna do? someone mm-hmm. else they're not nintendo um hell of a strategy though um yeah, nintendo doesn't care like nintendo is doing its own thing you know they are the disney of the 21st century the, the disney it's but it's you know disney caters to millennials just, and above now
1: i suppose but you know the you know, there's a lot to say for just like being in charge of the course of your company and mm-hmm. so whatever like you know now it seems obvious, but when esports, you know, started to take off and started to make a lot of headlines, like 2014, 2015, 2016, Nintendo didn't care. They're like, whatever, screw screw you guys. And you know, ultimately they were right because it became this distraction for a lot of publishers. And so Nintendo
0: is just impervious to whatever is hot right now. They just do what they do. Do you think esports orgs are as capped in their existence as I do and are getting unnecessary VC friends because competitive events, sponsorships and merchandise have a ceiling on what they can generate. And I think the idea that all of this will become a professional sports style world is a bit naive, because all of those existed on generational passing, the fandom ships that exist in traditional sports exist on passing fandom ships down, parent to kid friend to um, friend, esports e- is a complicated
1: thing, because it's, you know, I think it's It is said waste resources. Yeah, I think it's wrongly valued by a lot of people, a lot of companies. You know, I think it's a marketing tool. It's a So that's the fundamental question: is is it marketing or revenue based? Right? Are you trying to make a dollar, or are you trying to engage your audience? And I think for like League of Legends, it works really well. They spend a bunch of money on the championships. Looks amazing. Well done. You know, they're the leaders in that. But if you are some like you know double A publisher, you're like, oh, we're doing esports. Whatever, man. Like you already lost. Like don't you know? You hire some. Like, yeah. It doesn't work.
0: Do you see? Do you see any of these esports brands? Because actually, I had a conversation with a couple of investors on this, who were talking about, you know, Team Liquid all these teams and and their their hopes for them. And I, I'm not bullish on it, right? I, I'm I'm in agreement with you, it where, it, engagement does generate revenue. You know to to Mm -hmm. that degree right so you do need it you do need it. very community oriented pokemon go has shown that a lot where the community Mm -hmm. events and it's sprung its own system around it of how these communities and fans interact with each other not even the game and so that and as someone who hosts events like i've been doing events around here whether they're 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 actual competitive not competitive esports but people want to play amateur sort of competitive versions, right? So there's, that's what I meant by there's a wider scale of these gaming events. I don't think esports in this full focus of replicating this competitive environment down to the way they do, you know, even the content surrounding it, like sports, everything is trying Mm -hmm. to be traditional sports, that lens is just totally incorrect, in my opinion. Uh, I'm more curious about the lifestyle gaming brands, right? So that's what I'm thinking about, which is funny, you mentioned games as media. Media lifestyle branding is not necessarily being one thing or another. So, one hundred themes—they're more you, you about you their content you,
1: and name. It's play is always just an excuse for people to hang out, right? 100%. And and it's it's so we whether it's like soccer, you you see that with the Super League in Europe, right? So like it's twelve clubs. They think they can sort of take the cream off the top. And they have some secret club going on, and then everybody goes, screw you guys, right? It was, yep. it was, uh, you know, uh, it was made, uh, it was grown by the poor and then taken by the rich. That's what yeah, they would that's say. What esports was.
0: Well, you know, that's, was doing it, and then they cherry picked the top of the 12 organizations, said, Yeah, you have $20 million, welcome to the club. You don't have $20 million, goodbye. Yeah. That, and so you have to wonder, like, you know,
1: is that, a trajectory of professionalization like you you there was the same early days of american football because people they were used to sort of the leather helmet stage and then it became mm-hmm. like a televised sport and then it started to change of course because now it has to be on all the time and it has to be shown in a certain way so that people can watch it and you can do commercials and it sort of changes and people are like yeah it's 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 sort of um, no longer true to its original nature and you see this constantly in Conventional and traditional sports and gaming goes the same way, of course, right? Once things become televised, once they become uh, catering, when they start catering to like competitions, it changes the thing. It's not the same thing anymore. And so I think when it comes to leagues and teams, like they're in the business of eyeballs. And so they should just stick to the practices that have everything to do with that. And it's the, you know, do something outrageous, have people of exceptional skill, you know, have a cool story in the background. You know, like whether you're watching, like if you're watching a cooking show, there's always like the evil one in the house. And there's always like the the one that's always crying or whatever, like there's personalities in in each of these reality shows. And so you could basically run the same script. I was reading a story today about um, some poor Russian kid who worked as a translator on some kind of boy band show. He got roped into it and they wouldn't let him leave without paying some ridiculous fees. So he gets stuck on the show for three months, all the way to the final until finally he got, you know, he got voted off the show and it's, this is ridiculousness. But so that part of the reason that works so well is because people didn't take him serious. He's like pleading, please don't vote for me. And people were like, this is the best character ever because it's so different. Anyway, so you have all these different uh, sorts of human drama in and around this so I think esports has a long way to go and really giving the personality because right now it's just you know seemingly just boys in like you know hoodies and, yeah but, uh, you, know, well, no, you know boys in yeah, soccer
0: but, looking jerseys no they yeah sort of like
1: <laughs> what, what what are we emulating here exactly right and so and I get it but it's you know it's it's because of the money that flows into it it's still trying to look too much like conventional athleticism yeah. and not enough of what it really is which is sort of like a rock star profession like it's for me esports is much closer much more akin to music than it is to sports 100 uh, in, in, in how it should pre- how it should present itself like more and so it's that. like the mtv of this generation right like you have the cool djs and the video jockeys and like mm-hmm. mtv where the are grind, the, the, the rap groups of course. gaming that's what you know, and why can't they play against each other in some cross-ponding, like like these sort of mosh pit adventures? Like,
0: where is that? Like, why is it also like stratified and like, you know- Because they, they, they look at a version of an audience that they think exists and the audience outside of it, they don't know how to get to. Because how do you get to an audience that exists but doesn't use the exact mm-hmm. forms of content that would appeal to them and can't be marketed to through the exact means? So you only have to appeal to that base fan that, part of me thinks a lot of these streamers don't even like their own fans, so. I mean,
1: you know, like they're ultimately stuck in some contract, right? So this just it's just a job for them, which is the, probably the same for a lot of like professional athletes and celebrities. Like it's just, that's your job now, right? That like you have to exactly. yeah. wave at these people. They don't, what, how I remember playing with others and competitively was, you know, a long time ago, but I would go to Chinatown in some illegal place underground and we'd play there and there'd be a bunch of 13 year olds, just hauling ass. You'd know, play Counter Strike, and it was unbeatable. But that, and it was and it was like and you'd sit there, and everybody was just trash talking each other, and it was a really visceral experience. That was fun. Like put a camera on that shit, you know? Like that seems so much more fun than they sort of cleaned up. Which is, of course, exactly what people used to say about American football as it became more professionalized. It's it too glossy. It's somewhere. exactly. Like, it, it it's la- too slick. It lacks grit. It's too slick. So you know, I don't know how you would capture that. But you, eventually, uh, it will arrive at some, you know, at a format that is a little bit more acceptable, and digestible, it's so that both advertisers
0: and audiences can be happy about it. But I think, think we're not there yet. The audience needs to develop, or the content needs to develop, or both simultaneously.
1: Mm, that's a good one. I, th- I think the the publishers have had an enormous weight in determining what things look like.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, I, I'm hoping that as things become a little bit more like web three, like a little bit more, uh, you know, where we have a little bit more agency and input Mm -hmm. uh, that we can have some kind of distributed ownership on some of these titles. Imagine that, like imagine a league not owned by some monolithic company, but owned by the players and the fans. I mean, funny enough,
0: they emulated all the traditional sports structures, except for the way the Green Bay Packers are set up, which (laughs) is they're owned by the, exactly, right? So when they forgot that one, they're like, football looks great, not that team though. That, we don't like that. <laughs> um, but I guess this is I'll give you one last question to let, let you get out. I know it took a little extra of your time. But it's one we ask every person that's come on the show. What is one piece of literature, comic book, uh, cartoon, etc, that you would love to see adapted into a video game? Ooh, that's so we've had um, on the show, Ed, Ed and Eddie. Uh, has been a request. Yu Yu Hakusho, the anime, uh, uh-huh. Batman Beyond video game was requested. Mayor Francis Suarez of Miami said he wanted a emulator or simulator for.
1: All right, that got one. So so, I'll mention to you, One of them is sort of like a, a good second runner-up. is like um, I've never really. I mean, there's but some exception, and I, I spoke. Um, last week, I did a panel with uh, Tilting Point and I just did a version of uh, Warhammer. I've always been a big fan of tabletop games. Games Workshop makes great stuff. Games Workshops makes a lot of money, so they don't really care about licensing so much. Uh, and I would love so much for there to be more of a digital version of what, uh, what Games Workshop has to offer and better translations of their physical properties into a digital setting. So that's the second runner up. So, like, I would love to see more of that. Uh, and i haven't really seen a satisfying one yet i think the uh, the primary one would be um uh you know and i know that exists uh, on the xbox many years ago uh, one of my favorite animes uh, berserk so i first berserk? read the books then i saw the saw the cartoon the anime and it was uh, you know i thought that manga had a lot to it um you know there is a game based on it but it's sort of like this mediocre hack and slash kind of game it's like it's there's there's a so there's an action component but it's also at the same time like there's a horror mm, aspect I'm, I'm it, no brother. And then, right and but it's also so dark right and what i loved so much about max Payne 3 is that in the beginning it's like oh whatever, whatever he loses his family and his baby dies and there's crackheads mm-hmm. everywhere shooting him and it's right. sort of like okay it's sort of like noir but then. By Max Payne 3, you're like, Jesus, this is serious shit. And so, like, take that same level of, like, mature darkness, like,
0: treat me like an adult, and, and do that with Berserk. Like, really flesh out that franchise. And I'm still waiting for that one. That's so funny. You mentioned that story. I don't, have you ever seen the movie? It's going to be way random. Uh, Death Note with Charles Bronson. Mm-hmm. <laughs> same plotline. Every single movie is the same. So you're like, oh, wait. It's, 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 oh, shit, they all die. And the next movie is like, I'm happy. Oh, shit, they all die. So just similar to Max Payne. I was like, oh shit, is he Charles Bronson? Um, That's hilarious. But uh, Excellent. that was, uh, yeah, that was all. Um, I would yeah, love to actually stay in touch with you if you wouldn't mind shooting uh, shoot an email. Um,